Hey, Heath. Hey, Raph. How's it going? Pretty good, thanks. How are you? Yeah, I am pretty awesome. Nice to nice to be here with you. Yeah, you too. How's the world looking with your new glasses? A uh, little bit bigger and a lot clearer. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. I, I was never short-sighted, but then when I got my first pair of glasses, I was like, oh, shit, this is really clear. <laughs> right. Then I realized I had been short-sighted my whole life. Yeah, yeah. Was that your experience? No, I used to have really clear vision. Actually, it's been the last few years of extra computer work where that's deteriorated quite quickly. Yeah. Mm, that could be a workplace injury. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Could be. Yeah. So um, today we're here to talk about the original Contrology map work sequence, 1 to 34, or if you're not quite as pure, 1 to 37. If you do the series of five, not the series of two. Yeah, if you're a Romana devotee, you're trained classically. So, um, why do we why do we want to talk about that? Is everything old new again? Uh, maybe it was, but it wasn't old to me when I when I grew up in Pilates school. Um, so the, the insight that I think triggered this conversation was um, doing the mat work from start to finish didn't happen. I didn't. I didn't do that in my training and was never instructed to do it. It wasn't part of the training that we do that. And so I never thought of it. I just sort of actually never kind of grew up thinking that that was the premise. Uh, Sounds like you had some teachers that didn't really know what they were talking about. Well, <laughs> my teacher certainly knew what they were talking about within the context of the learning materials they were delivering. I'll give him a piece of my mind one day. <laughs> Anytime you're ready. Imbeciles. I'm sure he's available when you are. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, but uh, all right. So, yeah, everything's new again. But yeah, I suppose I, what, I, when I would, what, I, what I would double click on with the Contrology repertoire is um, what, I, what I've learned about how to teach movement to people, about graded exercise, setting them up for success, uh, and even the external cueing when we look at the way Joseph taught. But I just see that a lot of that's built into that repertoire and that by doing the repertoire from the beginning to the end, let's say enough times that you get a sense of it and whatever challenges it presents to you, you're able to become confident enough with that you're not just concentrating on finishing the movement but that you can think about it in context a bit. It's like a text. It's like it, it offers up to you a whole lot of information about what you're doing you know it's not going to change the course of the universe or anything but and so as so then when i see lots of let's say people on the instagrams you know talking about how to teach the roll-up more deeply there's a bit of me that thinks no when you can do the roll-up you do the next one you do the rollover you know like you don't go deeper into the one movement you go further along the progression and that i think that summarizes the way I would I understood it when I was taught was that for the individual with their posture or their muscle balance or their whatever you needed to break up or chop up the individual exercise so that it suited the individual rather than find the version they can do once they can do it progress them to the next one so actually move them forward through the repertoire rather than chop up the one early exercise so that it fits their posture, muscle balances, blah, blah, blah. Mm. 
So the the I guess the 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 elephant, if we want to call an elephant, is the you know, deconstruction of the the thirty four contrology exercises. You know, hundred roll up, roll over, one leg circle, roll back, single leg stretch, double leg stretch, etc. Um, that when when you and I learned it um, in the contemporary Pilates multiverse were you know the 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 hundred was like six exercises because you started with ab prep with your feet on the floor and you know just doing head nods <laughs> actually head nods head nods then ab prep then you know tabletop then whatever it was uh, and after like you know x number of weeks you got to do the hundred or, or whatever um bend legs with, yeah um and uh so never actually just going through the sequence, like from hundred to push up, you know, all thirty-four in a row, which actually once you once I did it, which was many years after I certified, you know, I, I until I did that uh, sequence. It's like it doesn't take very long. It takes like it takes me less than twenty minutes to get through the whole thirty-four exercises, uh, and it's weird that in my whole certification we never once did that. You know, never once did that sequence as a sequence, which to me now just seems like weird and crazy, given that's like that's the whole content of Joseph's book, this <laughs> this sequence. Yeah, so uh is the is the is the the is your I guess your your message, your thought, you know, what you're what we're what we're working towards here is that maybe we better thing uh, for, for well, I, yeah, I guess, what is it? You know, like, I guess, you know, you I know you're a big fan of the original Contrology 34, um, and I think it's tr- probably true that if you were con- training contemporary Pilates, you may not be that familiar with the original Contrology 34 uh, in their just original form. Um and so what's the, you know, what's the benefit? Why should we care about this? You know, I mean, why why not just do it the way you were taught, you know, with five different versions of 100, et cetera? There's a variety of ways we could sort of enter that question. Um, one that comes to mind easily is when Joseph's premise seems to be, I feel like he said this explicitly, but maybe I imagine it, that he was trying to make people healthier, happier, and live longer. You know, the, I'm pretty and, sure he said that. Yeah, yeah, I'm pretty sure he said that too. I think he used the words vitality and spontaneous joy and things like that, yeah. Yep. Um, so however it was explained, we, we were on the same page. And what we know now and what we teach in Breathe courses is – an evidence-based approach, which leads you know leads us back time and time again to the physical activity guidelines, which is 150 to 300 minutes of moderate cardio, which means you're slightly out of breath, and two to three strength training sessions per week. All of per week, that's all per week. <laughs> and strength trainings means your most your major muscle groups go to near fatigue. <clears throat> and I can pretty safely say I never got out of breath and was never challenged in my strength when I was doing the five versions of the hundred before I got to do the hundred. And when you do do the repertoire in sequence, even if you're fit, like even if you're super fit, 
it's still half an hour of whole body movement, so you will yeah. be slightly out of breath. So it's like, all right, yeah. but there's that. You could enter that question at that point. It's like if you just do the repertoire, you're actually getting evidence-based health benefits from exercise where if you, let's say, do head nods for 20 reps, well, arguably you're getting nothing. Right. So, all right. So there's a health bend. There's a, a, the. It's funny that um, you know we have this very deeply held core value of science, you and I, and you know Pilates is very, by definition, is kind of a traditional field because it's based on the teachings of a person, you know, historically. Uh, and you know, some of what Joseph Pilates taught has turned out not to be borne out by science, like the, the skin brushing and you know, whatnot, but a lot of what he taught specific to the the actual repertoire that he taught, the way that he taught, um, has turned out to be surprisingly prescient and is very much in line with current best evidence on how to uh, get the most benefit from your exercise. Um, and it's, it's, it's um, I guess it's, it's paradoxical that a lot of Pilates has gone in a direction, has, has evolved in a direction over the decades since Joseph's death that has actually moved away from current, you know, our 2023 current understanding of best exercise and sports science, you know, uh, knowledge. And actually Joseph's like 1940s version of, of how to do Pilates or controlology as it was at the time is actually more up to date in most respects than, than what you find in a, or when I say more up to date, I say more in alignment with current scientific best evidence, clinical guidelines, physical activity guidelines, et cetera. Uh, I mean, research on motor learning, um, as than you would find in most contemporary Pilates, uh, or even classical Pilates um, curricula, you know. So I think, yeah, he's 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 uh, he sent us a time capsule. Hmm. Yeah, and the other part of that, which yeah, we could could say was in the time capsule, is as you said, how people learn as well. You know, when when you this is the thing that knocked me off. Well, I I found fascinating once I started to do the repertoire from start to finish regularly, uh, that the, it, it plugs in, like it lines up really neatly with uh, graded exercise. Like, you know, do, do, do what you can today until you can make it easy and then do something harder. And, you know, roughly speaking, make the thing you're already doing just a little bit harder like you don't have to kind of reinvent the wheel just do the thing you're doing make it a bit harder and if you've got some weights use some weights because that's just is the same movement but as well as that there's the motor learning aspect of early success so pick something that you can do then make it harder so you've succeeded rather than failed and what i got from my training was the assumption that everyone was in danger or incapable mm. you know so we have to make this so small and so detailed you know so microscopic that everyone can do it but actually I don't know. It was like holding back the innate human ability to move. I think the assumption there is underpinning that is that technique should precede load. Like, you know, don't load, quote, 
dysfunction, unquote. Yep. Yep. Uh, and, you know, before you can, you know, quote, earn, unquote, the right to load your body, you must, you know, earn earn that right with perfect technique and activation and scapular stabilization and, and whatnot. Uh, whereas what we know now um, from the injury prevention literature is that's not true. And in fact, it's actually just load tolerance that prevents injury, not tech, not perfect technique. And so actually load is the safest way to prevent injuries. <laughs> yeah, right. And that's that's a mind blower. I think and I'd say that's probably in like the top three conversations I have with Pilates students who are already instructors is real re- restructuring their thinking paradigm so they're not thinking technique first followed by load but actually load management it's all load management if the load is light enough that your system can tolerate it you can do it with any form you freaking want mm, mm, mm. Uh, yeah that's something called the i think it's called the training injury prevention paradox which i'll link in a paper in the show notes uh, it's a paper by Tim Gabbett et al., an Australian uh, sports science researcher, and his his uh, big area of interest is training load and injury prevention. And the paradox that is the training injury prevention paradox is that uh, people, and he's dealing with athletes in particular, but so athletes who have consistently high training volumes, you know, intensity and amount of, of exercise they do each week, have less injuries than athletes who have lower training volumes. And so the interpretation there is that athletes who have very consistently high training volumes develop a tolerance to those volumes. Their system gets stronger. Their ligaments, muscles, tendons, bones, et cetera, get stronger as in response to that high level of consistent loading. And then when they get out on the playing field and someone whacks into them sideways or they twist their leg in a whatever – they, they can tolerate that. So they're less likely to become injured. Whereas those have a relatively lighter training load. When they get on the field, they're less conditioned. Their system has a lower tolerance. Uh, and so they're more easily injured. So the training injury prevention paradox is actually the more you train, the less likely you are to get injured as long as you build up gradually to that high level of training. Which is another way, of, the last bit is another way of saying graded exercise, right? It's like graded progression. Right. It's the graded in graded exercise. Right. And that's the thing that um, like that I was sort of trying to get my head around explaining before is when you do the, the mat work repertoire, which I'd never done, so I never realized it, is it's kind of, for me, it's in like three chapters. I don't think there's anything groundbreaking about that. And each chapter kind of builds on the last one and either couples movements together or just makes them a bit harder. So one leg circle becomes corkscrew. Which is you could have, if you had to describe corkscrew, how we, I don't know. It's kind of like a a big circle you draw with two legs. Oh, like a two leg circle. Well, it's, I always think of it if if uh, roll roll over and one leg circle had a love child, you know. Right, and that we talk about that, right? So if you wanted, if you wanted, if you want to know if a person in your group that you're teaching or in your session is going to be able to have a go at corkscrew, well, see if they can do the roll up. And then if they can, great, do the rollover, awesome. And one leg circle, then they're probably good to go for corkscrew. Right. And, you know, I mean, maybe that's patently obvious to everyone, but that was a, a light bulb of the blinding obvious to me when I realized you could just build the later movements with the earlier movements and you didn't need to do head nods. Right. And I'm just going to dive in for a moment here of uh, Pilates nerddom and, and uh, just – 
just double click on that, what you said there being the corkscrew is, which is where you roll over and swivel your hips and roll down and swivel your hips and roll back up the other side and pause and then rinse and repeat in the other direction is really an amalgamation or a synthesis of the rollover plus the one leg circle. And I love the way you framed that. And I agree entirely. And I noticed that you didn't say it's an amalgamation of the rollover and the hip twist with stretched arms, which, you know, on the face of it, the hip twist actually is more, looks more similar to the corkscrew in that your, your legs are together and you're, swiveling your whole lower body like you do in the corkscrew. But in the hip twist, the challenge is it's a it's an inner range hip flexion exercise. And you're so your hips are very flexed and you're smashing your rectus femoris and psoas at, at very short range. Whereas in the corkscrew it's you actually rolled over and it's a hip extensor exercise mainly that you're working your hamstrings and your glutes and your adductor magnus, whatever, in deep hip flexion. So it's actually a very different different muscular challenge in those two exercises. So, yeah, I entirely agree. But well, um, And even more so, the other reason, like another dimension that's the, that uh, makes that same argument is one leg circle, which is the uh, one of the elements that you describe, especially when you keep your shoulders on the floor, as Joseph describes, it twists your spine. And I would say the essence of one leg circle has got nothing to do with the leg circle. It's a spine twist. It's a spine rotation, yeah. Right. And corkscrew rotates your spine, where hip twist doesn't so much because your butt stays on the floor. Right, which is so weird because when you and I learnt the one leg circle, <laughs> we were, you know, hit with a willow switch uh, and told to keep if both the hips. If left the floor. Yeah. Right. Yeah, but your hips must be quite stable in quote uh, at all times, and so we actually took out the spinal rotation, became a hip dissociation move, uh, which was great for all the ballet dancers in you know in the room because they're like, oh, this is you know feels like a nice stretch in my hip, but uh, yeah, it has and I don't, it's not bad or a negative thing that that's you know people do it like that, and if if you teach it like that, that's great. There's nothing wrong with disassociating your hip, but it kind of like fairly fundamentally changed the actual whole intent of the exercise. You know, where Joseph in Return to Life, he specifically and explicitly says, note, you know, make sure the hip lifts up off the floor. You know, like he draws your attention to it. Uh, that's that's definitely, a, you know, front of his mind for him when he's when he's creating that or teaching that exercise. All right, so you've so you all right, so you said the repertoire is in the 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 Contrology thirty four, which uh, in you said three chapters, and I can kind of see what you mean there, where you've got, for example, in that kind of first you know ten exercises, you've got the hundred, the roll up, the roll over, the one leg circle, uh, the roll back, the single leg stretch, the double leg stretch, uh, then the spine stretch, the rocker with open legs. And then we get into, you know, what I think of as like the second, <laughs> the second section. But I wonder where you, and, and then, then I guess that, you know, what you're, I guess what, what I, what you're, what you mean is that then we basically go into the second section and third section uh, where we basically re- repeat that, that very similar themes, you know, movement themes of that first series of exercises, but just harder or more inverted or, you know, bigger or, or whatever it might be. So we've got, you know, single leg stretch and then we've got scissors, you know, and then we've, the third chapter is we've got control balance, Yep. you know, of that same sequence. 
Um, and but the thing is, when we get to the final chapter, you know, the control balance and the boomerang and the sidekick kneeling and whatever, like they're really integrating more than one. It's not just like control balance is not just an advanced version of single leg stretch. No. Right? It's because it's got rollover in there. It's got rocker with open legs in there. Like it's got, you know, it, it's you're putting it, uh, it all together. You're integrating stuff. So is that the way you see the chapters? Yep. Exactly. Where would where would you differentiate them? Like where would you where would you insert the the chapter headings in that? Yeah. <laughs> in that uh, so I to me I I say the second chapter begins at the spine stretch, and I I think that because um, the roll up, if you if you have so for the for the for the beginner client who can do the roll up. That there's nothing that pushes them into the stretch, right? Like the, te- the, the the strength, the strength and integrity of their uh, spinal ligaments and muscles and hips, etc., will limit them into that stretch as much as they try. And then the rollover is a harder version because there's more weight on it, more of your body weight in the stretch. But then when we come around to the spine stretch again, it asks you to. For you know, have your legs apart and to pump into that stretch. So it's like, okay, we've done that once. You touched on it. Now we're going to make it a little bit more intense, and you're going to drive it a bit more. And then another way where it doubles is the rolling back or the rolling like a ball. You know, what does that show you? It shows you is the person confident enough to roll back and forth, put their head on the floor, put their weight on their shoulders, but they only have to be there for a split second. But then we go and do um, scissors. No, well, even before the scissors, when we go and do, where am I going? Open leg rocker. Mm-hmm. When I do open leg rocker, I've got straight legs if I keep my legs straight while I'm learning it, and I roll back, and there's a lot more weight going back onto my head and shoulders. You know, so yes, that's exact. That that that's where I see the distinction for the second chapter, and the third chapter is after scissors, and that's a long. The third chapter is a long chapter. After bicycle, you mean? Or a bicycle? Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, actually, after shoulder bridge. After shoulder bridge. Shoulder bridge yeah. 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 Totally, Scissors for me just means the beginning of the inversions. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, at the end of that, I feel like that's the third chapter, and we could probably make an argument that there's like sub chapters in the third chapter or something. But you know, because spine twist is not. I mean, it's not really totally linear, right? Because you you couldn't. I mean, it'd be very hard for me to be convinced that if you were to say like, okay, spine twist is harder than corkscrew, for example. Right. You know, like I think I, I dispute that. Um, so, but I think it's it's designed very well that like you wouldn't want it to just get harder and harder and harder and harder and harder every exercise for thirty four exercises, right? You want there to be kind of ebb and flow yeah. in any workout. You want sort of peaks of intensity and then kind of periods where it backs off, and you it's it's you're still working, but it's not as intense. And then you go for another peak. Absolutely, but, and that's exactly. I mean, so like the roll up is easier than the rollover and we could pretty safely I think argue that the rollover is more demanding than the spine stretch. Agreed. Right. So it's there's the peak, you know, and then the double leg stretch and the crisscross if you're doing the full thirty seven, they're I don't know, I'm I'm a purist, I'm not gonna do that. <laughs> okay. They're harder, physically harder and more demanding than spine stretch. The challenge of spine stretch is the flexibility of the hips to sit in right. the art position. So you're absolutely. So when we say chapters, for me, it's not just chapters. It's actually peak, trough, peak, trough, peak. That builds, right. gives you a little bit of a break. Builds again, gives you a little bit of a break. Builds again. 
Right. I actually, uh, and I think it, the, 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 the peaks are not necessarily the same for every person because we all have different strengths and flexibilities and body mass and, and whatever it might be. And so, you know, for me, I actually find like the last three exercises, you know, probably the last, yeah, three, four exercises less of a peak. You know, like to me, the control balance is like it's challenging, but it's not vigorous particularly. You know, I'm not like, oh, crap, this, I'm, I've got to psych myself into doing it. But something like, I don't know, uh, hip twist, I've got to psych myself into doing that. Yeah, or you know, boomerang if you do it the way we see yeah. him doing it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's hard. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the other thing, just like while we're nerding out on that progression, and I've been meaning to ask you this for about 10 years, is something that I observe in that repertoire is in Joseph's programming, at least on the mat, he always precedes backbends with twists. Uh-huh. And I know that's a convention from a lot of yoga programming as well. And I wondered if you've got any insight. I've, I've, you know, it's been on my list of things to Google Scholar for like 10 years and also to ask you for 10 years. So here we are. Do you have any thoughts on why rotation would precede extension? No, actually, to be honest, I've never thought about that. Um, but now you pointed out, I just think, yeah, of course. Um, uh, you know, he doesn't always follow rotation with extension, but he... But he always precedes always, extension with rotation. Right. Yep. Um, so, you know, before swimming, you've got hip twist. Uh, before rocking, you've... Uh, well, actually, no, before rocking, you've got like crab and seal come before rocking. Oh, fair so, point. Yeah, you're quite right. Uh, yep. And ro- rocking's, I would say pretty inarguably the most full-on extension in in the whole sequence yeah i i'm i'm prepared to push back on that in the sense that if you can easily reach your ankles and people tend and their spine is fairly mobile they tend to feel it like a leg exercise right, rather than right. extension exercise all right i'm speaking from my own experience so yeah, yeah. I'm, right with tight, with you. I'm right there with you but you know back and heavy legs yeah yeah, yeah. but when you see uh, someone whose spine bends a lot, they just grab their feet and they're like, wow, my quads, man. Okay. And so for somebody, uh, I guess, well, you know, because you've got like before swan dive is sore, yep. you know, there's your, there's your well, rotation. And corkscrew, right? So it's two right. twists driven from yep. either end of the body. Yeah. Um, I guess, you know, we don't often really think about this, but shoulder bridge is, ex- is extension, right? Yep. In the contrology repertoire. I mean, I know when we learned in stop Pilates, it was like neutral spine you know, from morning, noon, and night. But actually, in Joseph's, you know, version, it's it's in its your spine's in extension, hmm. and before that comes bicycle and scissors. Now, I guess you know you could like really kind of push the point and say bicycle. Well, it's you know reciprocal leg movement, so it's kind of a rotational. You know, it's like oh, I don't know. No, a bit more <laughs> likely to argue that shoulder bridge is not full spinal extension because it's really uh-huh. sort of lumbar extension. Right. And you're supporting your hips with your yeah. hands anyway. Um, but yeah, so all right. So I'd say it's not it, it's not a rule that extension is always preceded by rotation, but it, he pretty regularly does it. And I would, yeah, so uh, particularly early, and in the, except for rocking, I think is the main one that I've, I, and I guess I, I take your point. I guess I'm only, you know, living my own experience in my own body when I do rocking. Oh no, okay. I, and I, I think that like that's one that's a question to take to Joseph when we get to Pilhalla, right? Okay, he did it in the early stages, but not in the later stage. Huh. You know, maybe by the time you're that advanced, you don't you don't need the warm up. 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because it's interesting, right? When you teach extension in a class, and then if you follow what people want, they'll tend to then go to a child's pose and they'll start to rotate yeah. fine. Yeah, yeah. But he yeah, doesn't yeah. do that. He goes, extension, let's move on. And I like, I mean, I like that. I, I like the sequence. Um, I mean, I guess I just like it because I'm familiar with it, but um, I think it's a good sequence. You know, yeah, I think it's some good programming. So do I. I mean, I have to admit, crab kind of sucks. I, I really don't like crab, and I don't, I can't recall ever meeting someone who loved crab. So, I think that was like, all right, that's the song on the Rolling Stones album. You're like, yeah, you always fast forward to, you know, yeah. We really like, wanted ten songs on the album, so we put that one in. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the argument that I make for crab, but I don't is, and again, it's a question I've got for Joseph when I meet him is. We see f- plenty of footage of him doing headstands. And like we've talked about, the book is clearly, it says explicitly, it's for people to do at home. But crab is not a bad way to enter into a headstand. Right. But and, that would be the advanced version, presumably. Right. And this is a great opportunity to segue into the conversation about the relationship between the controlled repertoire and gymnastics. And when I, uh, when my daughter was you know, kind of seven or eight, um, she did gymnastics for a few years. I used to take her down there and sit and watch her for an hour. And, um, the, they did this warm up every time that led, led, you know, got led through this warm up that, that was literally the Contrology repertoire. It wasn't the whole 34, but they did, you know, like they did the, the swan dive, like the original Joseph version of the swan dive, which rocking back and forth. Um, they, they did hollow holds. They did swimming. They, you know, they, they did, like a control balance, like almost the you know word for word choreography of control balance. They did they did you know rocking uh, with open legs. Um, you know, so I was thinking like, oh, I can t-, and and it wasn't it wasn't billed as oh we're going to do some Pilates to warm up. That was just a it was just a stock standard gymnastics warm up, mm. right? And I was like, ah, oh, that's where Jason got <laughs> it from. <laughs> yeah. That's where he got it from. Yeah, and you know, to the conversation we're having, like. When you look at gymnastics training progressions, well, as the name suggests, they are progressions and they break it down into like blocks and skills, a little bit like ballet, right? You have to do X number of skills before you progress. But that's exactly like the chapters we just described, right? You've got right. to do these versions of a skill at, a, at the given level. And when you can master that, you move on to the next version of the skill at the next given level. And eventually right. you're doing crazy ass triple back flippy flippies but that started out with holding a dish p- position while you rocked back and forth mm. Mm. Yeah. so so had so tell me about how you know because you were saying off air before we started that you see you know you don't see this this controlled repertoire as you know terribly strenuous and i i guess i agree with you i mean i would say like when you first do it yeah it's strenuous as or get out yeah you know, and there are there are parts of it that I still suck at. You know, hello rocking. You know, but um, but you know, like okay, you're doing like literally like three push-ups at the end. That's like yeah, that's like yeah, ninety-seven less <laughs> than you probably need to do to get a really good workout. And you, there's no like really strong leg work in. Like there's some good hip work in there, but you're not never really working your quads or your calves to any great you know, or your hamstrings, or, you know, you're stretching them a lot, but, you know, there's not a real, it's not, you know, you, I mean, you can get through the whole thing in 19 minutes. I can anyway, if you go, if you do the, the suggested number of reps that Joseph 
suggesting a return to life. You said you take about half an hour because you do yours. I do a few extra reps. Yeah, you know. So yeah. So where do so you know? Do you? Th- I guess. The, I guess the question in you know, embedded in that kind of is. You know, when you and I both learnt this, we learned it from the, through the Stop Pilates manual where there's 76 exercises and most of what's in this original control of your repertoire is, was presented to us as the, quote, advanced repertoire, you know. And we were like, oh, you had to go and do a special course. You didn't even learn about it in your normal, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. intensive map plus. So you had to do an extra course where you learned the, quote, advanced repertoire. And it's like, no, like that's what Joseph would teach you on your freaking first day, first day. you know, doing Pilates. Yeah. <laughs> you know. I, I think the thing that, like, before we launch into that, I suppose what I, well, we've already talked about how the repertoire is graded. So the first chapter is is easier than the second chapter, whether that's in coordination or strength or flexibility or combination of those things. And some people, depending on their current physical capabilities, will find the early stages challenging. You do get clients who can't do a roll up yet, and you do need to modify that. So I, I think. You know, forgetting, remembering that it's easy to forget what we don't know. It's not super hard when you can do it, but if you can't do it yet, it's a really good system to build that capability, which is awesome, right? So it's not like here's something that you're going to suck at, mm, go and suck at it. It's like here's something that you might suck at the end of it, but at the beginning, you're more likely to succeed. And if you really need it, we can break it down a bit more. Um, yeah, so I suppose with that, just sort of just to anyone that's thinking, it's all right for you guys to say that because you've been doing it for 20 years and you're fit, strong, and able. It's like, well, it's 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 strong if you're not strong enough yet, but it's well designed to build your strength. And- yeah, well, I, I think uh, when I say it's not that strenuous, I mean, I think like I still suck at a lot of those exercises. I'm by no means perfect at most of them. Yeah. But, you know, and my flexibility still leaves a lot to be desired and I'm not that grateful. Like, I don't think I'm perfect at them all. Yep. I don't, that's not what I mean. But I just think, like, I could do I, I do that that routine and it's like afterwards I'm not exhausted. It's like, you know, it's not that grueling in my view. Agreed. Agreed. And as he describes it, it's meant to leave you feeling… Invigorated. …refreshed and invigorated yeah. as opposed yeah. to debilitated and exhausted. Yeah. 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 And I think it succeeds marvellously at that. And all I was saying is… If you if you are exhausted at the end, all you have to do is keep doing it a bit longer. Keep doing and, it, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> keep going, and it will come to come to that. Yeah. Well, that, and that's exactly what he says in the book, right? Just do it. Like if at first you can't do the full exercise or you can't do the full number of reps, just do what you can, and then do a little bit better tomorrow, and a little bit better tomorrow, and do it three times a week, and before you know it, bada bing, bada boom, you're doing it. Right? Yeah. And even twenty years later, you know, you're probably still going to suck at rocking or whatever your nemesis exercise is. Right, but it won't leave you feeling sore or stiff or tired or you know it'll just be like oh yeah did my workout great move on with the day feeling good. Well, yeah, I, I can't remember where we started in on this line, but one thing I've often thought is, especially when you look at the videos of what Joseph does, you know, with his mates out in the snow or whatever, whichever bit of archival footage you're looking at, I kind of think, yeah, this is your warm up. And you yeah. know that it's good for other people who aren't as fit as you, but for you, you just do this and then you get on with the next thing, right? And I guess that's that's the that's the what you know really the light bulb that went off in my brain when I watched my daughter at gymnastics is it is the warm up, yep. right? The contrology sequence is the warm up for a standard gymnastic class, like it's the warm up, yeah. you know. <laughs> and then you go and dips in the rings and you do, right. your, yeah, yeah. Yep. And you do your handstands and your right. wheel poses and you 
kickflips and all of those types of things, yeah. you know. And um, I think that's where we started off on that line of discussion was when you said it's not particularly um, de- uh, de- de- demanding, that's not the word you used, and, and then you, you're quite right. Like the, there's no, there's really no legwork. You don't do any squats in the original repertoire. And in fact, apart from the entry and the, and the, and the stretch for the push-up, you don't bear your full body weight. You don't stand and bear your full body weight. It's all on your back or your side or your belly. Right, and Joseph says in the book that's to take you know, strain off the heart, which is like, you know, all right, I'm sorry, Joseph. That, he missed that, that one. That, <laughs> that one hasn't stood the test of time. You know? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, well, agreed. And I suppose that loops us back to the physical activity guidelines, right, that we've been talking essentially about cardio, where you're out of breath but not failing to do the movement under load. And let's face it, Pilates repertoire is not very good at that. If we're talking about the repertoire purely, it's just not very good for strength training. Uh, I don't know. I think I, I th- I'd like to qualify that. I yeah. think uh, it's not very. I think the Pilates repertoire. When I, and, and again, when we talk about the Pilates repertoire, there's a wide range of things we're, that we're talking about the mat work, the, the contrology, that, the contrology. You know, one to thirty-four sequence, or if you're less of a purist, one to thirty-seven. Um, and and I welcome my sisters and brothers who do the series of five. You know. <laughs> That's, we can we can still be friends, um, even though crisscross does does suck. Um, so I think uh, if you come as a previously untrained individual and you start doing the contrology sequence, you will get a truckload stronger. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, right. And that's the qualification I was trying to make before: is that if you're not strong enough yet, it will make you strong. Right. Yeah, then you are. Right, but, but there's but there's a there's a there's a ceiling to that progression to how much stronger you can get because it literally is the warm up. Well, and also, you don't do any bent arm loaded loaded bent arm work. Well, right, you do three push ups. Yeah, and you don't do any squats or lunges. So it's right. like you're just missing out some fairly major dimensions of strength right. and movement. Or, or there's like. 30, 32 ab exercises and <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, no arms right. or legs. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Might be, I mean, it's probably a separate conversation, but we've, we've been talking a lot in the courses at the particular points they're at at the moment about the relationship between endurance and strength. You know, and I mean, the endurance of your abdominals, if you can do the mat work, is considerable. Like, yeah. So, but that's not the same thing as strength. No. No, but when you start out as an untrained person, as you've been sedentary for years or decades, you will get stronger. Like in the in the pure biomechanical definition of strength, you will get stronger by doing the mat work. But that's only going to go up to a point, and then at a at a at a fairly early stage, within a couple of months, you'll stop getting stronger, and you'll improve your endurance a little bit more. But then you'll stop improving your endurance as well, and you just get more skillful at the moves. You know, but you'll you won't get less strong. You know, you'll get stronger and you'll get better endurance and then you'll maintain that, but you're not going to keep getting stronger and keep getting better endurance. You're just going to improve, you know, beyond a certain point, you're just going to improve your skill at the movements. And and that's what you mean, I know, when you say it's not great for strength training because if that was like a situation, say, with uh, weights where you just keep adding more weight and there's no literally no limit to how much more weight you can add, so you can just keep getting stronger as what up to whatever your physiological full potential is. Um, whereas with the mat work, yeah, you get stronger, but then, you know, unless you 
doing shoulder bridge with a kettlebell on your hips or something, um, at some point you're going to stop, <laughs> you know, progressing. <laughs> um, but I mean, the thing is like, well, how much strength do you need? You know, and, and I would argue that for, for most people, you know, the level of strength you, you obtain from doing the control of your repertoire is fine. You know, it's a bazillion times better than doing nothing. Absolutely. Except I would add, you know, 20 push-ups and 20 squats right. afterwards. And when, when I used to teach, um, oh, what did we call the class? We oh, I ran a class, some really imaginative name, like the original repertoire, I think that's what we called it. Mm. And um, But we would start every session. I think I got this from a video of Joseph, like I don't take credit for it. We would start with standing footwork, but footwork, but with no reformer. And it was like, what does that look like? Oh, three rounds of 15 yeah. squats. <laughs> that was great, right? And people would come back and say, wow, man, my legs feel so strong after a few months of this. And these are people who at the beginning couldn't do a full depth squat. They couldn't get out of the bottom of the squat. But after mm. X period of time, they're doing full squats. And then we do multiple sets of that, take a little break, do something else, and then do the third, second and third set. And that was how I mitigated for that in a group setting. And that seemed mm. to work really well. And the, mm. and the Pilates people that came were like, oh, yeah, standing full work. That's cool. Mm. Mm. Which is great because when you're teaching a 50-minute or one-hour session and you're teaching the original mat work, it's like, well, what do you do for the other half you hour? 20 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was always a bit of a thing. Yep, yep. Okay, guys, yep. All right, early mark today again. <laughs> yeah, same as the last five weeks. Maybe we should change the schedule. <laughs> Well, and I think it's a fantastic routine because basically it's, a, like you said earlier, it's a home exercise routine, right? Mm -hmm. He he wrote it in the book Return to Life, which was the book to take Pilates, you know, or Contrology to the, to the, to masses. the masses, right? And this was something everyone could do at home and everyone should do at home and, you know, the world be, would be a better place and that's true. All of those things are true. So, but when you went and do, did, you know, Contrology with Joseph, yes, you did these exercises, but you also did other stuff as well you did you know the reformer and the cadillac and all of the rest of it and lots of step ups on the chair and you know so there was a lot of leg work and arm work involved in the other apparatus that you don't really get on the mat yeah although you can right like you said just to you know if you want to dress it up so pilates people so the pill goes down a bit smooth you can call it footwork standing <laughs> you know but you know let's face it it's it's squats yeah right <laughs> Um, and you can do push-ups, you know. Uh, it's hard to get a pulling movement going, an upper body pulling movement going on the mat. You know, you can be like, there are some like crazy inventive ways you can do it with tables or door frames or bands or kettlebells and things like that. But uh, if it's- People on yoga mats, it's hard to- Right. Yeah. It's pretty hard. I mean, you, can, you know, you can do partner work, you know, um, and one person can do the horse stance and the other person can, <laughs> can do the pull-ups. Yeah. Um, I but, never found it went well. I never found putting people together- so you had to have yeah. really long-term clients who kind of had drunk the Kool-Aid. doesn't work well with beginners. No, particularly for that that one. Um, you know, maybe if we give each other a nice little neck stretch at the end or something, that's a nice way to pair people up. But, yeah. Yeah, the koala drill doesn't go well. I think I, – I actually believe it's it's kind of uh, integral in the way that Pilates has changed over the years and evolved over the years. And I guess I want to just preface this by saying, like, I don't really think of myself or, and I'm pretty sure you don't think of yourself this way either, Heath, as a purist. Like we don't feel like, oh, we do contrology. So therefore we, you know, we know the quote true, quote, end quote, you know, version of Pilates, which is you know, inherently better than any other version. Like all versions of Pilates are awesome. If you do, 
athletic Pilates and a reformer, if you do classical Pilates, if you do contemporary Pilates, it's all good, it's all great. Um, but I feel – so when we say, you know, Pilates has changed, like I don't necessarily think – I don't mean that to be a negative thing, but it undeniably has changed over the years. And I think, you know, one thing that I've repeatedly observed, and I don't think this would be very controversial, but if you disagree, dear listener, you know, write me in, let me know, like hit me up on Instagram with a DM or whatever, um, is that like in the Pilates world – there's a lot of overthinking that happens, a lot of perfectionism that happens. Um, dear listener, if you're listening now, you know, I'm writing your color-coded notes uh, to this. As <laughs> um, I don't know, I, you know, maybe that's not you, but chances are, statistically, it's likely <laughs> that that is you. Um, and I think that there's a lot of overthinking that stop that holds people back in Pilates, like holds people back from not just from doing from teaching Pilates, but from like what do I post on Instagram? I'm overthinking it has to be perfect before I can post anything. You know, oh, how can I go and teach this exercise? I haven't mastered it perfectly myself yet. You know, um, what if I? How can I be a good Pilates instructor if I'm not perfect at the moves? Um, if I don't remember the breath pattern for, you know, there's a lot of perfectionism that goes on. And I think that's encouraged a lot, uh, albeit, you know, not intentionally necessarily by, you know, the super detailed, you know, deconstructed way of teaching that has sort of become the norm, I think, in a lot of Pilates. Whereas actually, you know, Joseph's approach to teaching was kind of the exact opposite of that. Like he was all about whole body movements, not this or that pet set of muscles. You know, he was not about isolating things and, you know, like he was about vigorous whole body movement. I, you know, like that famous saying, which, you know, I've heard from a couple of different sources was when people asked him in the gym, you know, hey, what's this exercise for? You know, he would get cranky and go, it's for the body. You know, like, <laughs> it's not for some specific part of your body. It's, it's a whole body thing. And when you look at these exercises, like, they are basically whole body exercises, the contrology sequence. So I think that the, you know, I guess it's a kind of a a sense that I, that has, or a suspicion that has been growing in me, you know, over time that the the further we get away from practicing contrology the way that Joseph did it, the more that kind of overthinking and perfectionism, you know, has become an issue within, you know, like within the Pilates space. I wonder if you have, what are your thoughts on that? I think my thoughts on that, I agree with that observation about the progression away from the way he taught it. Um, and I have two, two things, that, two thoughts on it. One I think stands up well and the other might be a bit cynical or at least, yeah, probably sounds a bit cynical, but I'll, I'll put them both on the table. What, one is uh, the, the, at the, the, the safety thing. It's like, you know, when, when there was evidence back mm -hmm. in the early 90s that seemed to suggest that, well, it did suggest, but then was quickly proven wrong, that you know, the, the firing patterns of specific muscles had some relationship to pain and, and right. Pilates was sort of already associated with people who were in pain. So, I, I, you know, it's like, okay, so all of a sudden, and that becomes viral. And so, like, okay, well, that seems to be one. And when, when, we, when, you, when I've sat with people and really thought through 
you know, asked, just kept, you know, asking 10 whys, not just five, but 10 whys on, on why form or regressions are important. Basically, the only things that I can get to are safety or aesthetics. Like if you, if you want to, if, if you believe that it is for safety, that would be a rationale. Turns out that in most cases, as we said about load management, what you should actually be thinking about is do they have the strength to complete the movement yet, not are they doing it correctly. But that's one way that I see that that has happened and I agree that it has happened. And the other is the one that's a bit more perhaps cynical that you know, I, I think there's a, a propensity in maybe it's in humans to gild the lily because it within the within the paradigm that you know so like what you've been taught rather than going oh maybe this isn't everything maybe i need to look outside my box and learn something new and explore the gymnastic repertoire or the yoga repertoire or strength training it's rather i'm just going to double click on the thing i know and and find how to make it seem to have more 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 meaning than maybe it does so Classic example for me is the roll-up. You know, I've seen, well, I've, I've seen workshops on how to do the roll-up and my mind just boggles. It's like, just do the fucking roll-up. Like, just lie just, down now. Lie down and up. roll up, right? Yeah. And if you can't, well, use Practice a couple it. of dumbbells or <laughs> yeah. do it backwards or have someone hold your ankles. You don't need to think about spiraling your femurs into your acetabulums and some of the things I've seen. It's like, that's just putting stuff in where you don't need to put it, as far as I can tell. That's a more. I'm a little less forgiving on that one. I totally get how the safety culture thing has bolted, and that's part of our mission together is to try and change that train. But mm. I understand that progression, and, mm. I, and I lived it. I lived that safety thing for a long time. Me too. Yeah, yeah. Hey, I want to. I want to talk about both of those. But first, uh, the first thing I want to address is uh, that. Um, the, the safety culture thing, um, which you said that research in the 90s, you know, seemed to suggest, and you said it did suggest that, um, you know, transverse abdomen, the, the, the firing sequence of transverse abdominis, you know, had something to do with back pain. And that is true, but I think it's it's not the whole story. And so this is, a, um, you know, very specifically the study that you were referencing is called Delayed Postural Contraction of Transverse Abdominus in Low Back Pain Associated with Movement of the Lower Limb by Paul Hodges and Carolyn Richardson from uh, University of Queensland in 1998. Uh, and what they did, and so this is where the whole thing about transverse abdominus come from. This is like patient zero, you know, of, <laughs> of the whole thing. <laughs> Um, um, and so what they did, uh, Hodges and Richardson at, uh, UQ in 1998 was they got, uh, I think like 47 or something. I'm pretty sure it was 47 from memory. Um, uh, first or second year physiotherapy students, cause they're both lecturers in the physiotherapy department and there's these people to get in your experiments are your students. So they just stick a notice up in the hallway there. Uh, and they got people who had low back pain, people who didn't have low back pain, and they put EMG electromyographs, so little um, stick stick on things that measured the activity of their muscles, the electrical activity of the muscles, to measure the trunk muscle and the and the um, uh, leg muscle. Um, and they basically then got people to to stand on two legs, and then uh, you know said, okay, now reach your leg back, reach your right leg backwards. And what they found was in the people without low back pain all of the trunk muscles fired in preparation before they lifted the leg, whereas in the people with low back pain, 
that the transversus abdominis, the firing was delayed by a few milliseconds, like 20, 30 milliseconds from memory. Um, and so the leg fired first. So first, you know, the abs fired, you know, the, the rex abdominis, the obliques, then the leg, then the transversus abdominis fired you know, in the people with back pain. And so what that does suggest, you know, based on that single study, is that there is an association between the firing sequence of transverse abdominis and low back pain. But what it doesn't suggest is that there's a causal link, right? So it doesn't suggest, and this is not what you implied, but I think that this is where we all, myself included, got confused, right? And 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 put the and and jumped in and uh filled in the blanks essentially right filled in more blanks than we then could have been you know should have been filled by this experiment so the experimental design would they didn't do an intervention right so basically we just observed they just observed that these people you know with back pain their transverse abdominus fired later so you can't logically conclude from that that the transverse abdominus firing later caused back pain right it could be the case that that happened or it could be the case that when when you get back pain, it causes your transversus abdominis to fire later. Or it could be the case that whatever causes low back pain also causes the transversus abdominis to fire late. Right? So and and simply observing that people with low back pain, the transversus abdominis fires late, doesn't give us any information about which one of those three possibilities is in fact correct. Right? There is we've got zero percent certainty of which one of those is correct. And so uh, that you know that study suggested an association between transverse abdominis timing and low back pain, but it didn't suggest anything about causation. And subsequent studies actually showed that the even the association doesn't exist, right? Because subsequent studies found that so in some people with back pain, transverse abdominis fires more early <laughs> than in the people without low back pain. And some studies showed no difference. And so it actually turns out to be you know a storm in a teacup. Um, but yeah, so I think that you know that was a very int- you know very interesting a- episode in in the kind of the rehab uh, sphere because even Hodges you know and Hides and Richardson those, the original researchers there they actually wrote a whole book on how to rehab low back pain with you know this transverse abdominis and multifidus activation you know uh, approach uh, and I read the book and I used that approach <laughs> for a couple of years. Um, but it was founded on a lack of interventional studies, you know, and, the, you know, time after time after time, when we look at the interventional studies where we get people with low back pain and we retrain their transverse abdominis, what we find is it helps, but it doesn't help any more than nope. any other form of exercise, right? So if you get someone who train their transverse abdominis to fire later, it helps just as much, you know? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so I think that would, that was a, that was an interesting interlude in the whole Pilates and physiotherapy world. And unfortunately, you know, some people are still stuck in that, you know, in that 1999 to 2002 thought bubble <laughs> where the rest of the world has moved on, but we're, you know, we're still stuck there anyway. So I think that's, that's something I, I wanted to address is just that the notion that association doesn't imply causation and that subsequently the association has been discredited anyway. Like it's not a thing. There have been like seven or eight systematic reviews that have just gone like, no, <laughs> this is blown this out is of the water. <laughs> right. Um, and so, all right. So, so that's the safety culture thing. But then I think the second, uh, you know, comment that, or the second, you know, what you call a cynical, <laughs> um, you know, comment, like, 
I, I guess, like, I don't necessarily see it, you know, so cynically. But, yeah, I mean, can you tell me more about why you, th- why you think that's the case? Why I think it's cynical? Yeah. Oh, uh, maybe I just, maybe, maybe I mean it. I mean, the safety culture one, you know, we're all busy. We're all, and we're all, it's like you can, you can understand how that train got going. Yeah. And if you're on the train and you've been taught by people that you respect and admire and have paid large sums of money to, and that, and it works, right? Because as you said, the interventions do can reduce. It works, right? So it's like, well, well then there you go. It's it's self confirming. So there we go. So right. in it just doesn't to, work any better than anything else, right? So you know, it's like a, I. So I look back to my previous self, and I'm quite forgiving about that. I'm like, you know, you didn't know any better. You were doing the best you could, and eventually you got more information, and you did it, you know, and you moved on. And so I, I have the same feeling about any sort of when i see that safety culture elsewhere it's like you know if you've got your clients moving and that's probably better than the alternative etc cetera, etc cetera. Oh, definitely better than the alternative yeah well i'm, I'm, I'm qualifying that because it's like you know sometimes you hear like oh be really careful or you hurt your back yeah, yeah. it's like yeah that's not great it's a bit um so but then i suppose maybe more maybe rather than cynical i just mean like conscious of maybe just becoming a grumpy old man it's like because, all right, like if you want to teach me to do the roll up and it's an aesthetic thing, and I don't know, I'm trying to think of something by spiraling in my femurs, it will encourage lumbar flexion, which will allow for a smoother roll up. It's like if you really want to do that, like I guess more power to you. But there's a bit of me that just goes, You're overthinking it. Like, yeah, just, just get them moving. If they can do the thing a few times, awesome, move on to the next thing. And then repeat it again the next time you see them. And over time, they will build those efficiencies on their own. Right. Well, I, I, I guess, you know, I guess I fundamentally agree with the substance of what you're saying there. But I, I guess I just don't attribute uh, any kind of, you know, ill intent on anyone's part. I feel like, you know, like you say, like when, if someone can't do the roll up, Right, and I give them the QR spiral, your femurs in, imagine butterflies drawing and blah, 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 right? And give them this amazing, and they're like, oh my goodness, I can do the roll-up. I'm cured. That's amazing. And everyone everyone in the class is like, oh, Raph, you're so great. What, a, what an amazing cure. I'm like, huh, that really works. And But why did it work? Like maybe the, I just gave them a bit more self-confidence that I gave them their magic cue and they thought, oh, I'll be able to do it now because Raph gave me the magic cue. And actually, I could have given them any cue, yeah. you know. <laughs> It wouldn't have, wouldn't have made any difference. So sorry, yeah. So let me qualify. So the, the the instance that I'm talking about is not the those finite the, these um, these extra cues to get someone doing the thing. It's the it's the workshop on the roll up when the person can already do the roll up, and now we're going uh-huh. to spend three hours right, deep right. diving on cues that improve your roll up. And it's a bit of me that just it's like, eh, you know. Oh, look, I'm with you, and I would. I would feel robbed if I paid money to go to a workshop, you know, and that taught that, you know, because I don't see any value in that for myself. But I, I don't necessarily attribute that to a kind of a, you know, people, um, I guess, you know, knowingly you know, misleading people or anything. No. I feel like- No, no, like oh, it, absolutely. It, yeah, yeah. yeah so back to my kind of hypothetical thought experiment, which wasn't so hypothetical because I'm I probably literally have done this, um, but uh, you know where I'm teaching. You know, some special cue to spiral your femurs to get 
people to do the roll up, right? Because it antagonizes the or deactivates the posterior oblique sling and blah, 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 right? Um, and then they could do the roll up. And it's like, well, maybe it was the magical cue, or maybe it was just the fact that I gave them some encouragement, you know? <laughs> or maybe it was the fact that they'd already practiced it five times and now they got a bit better at it, you know? <laughs> just a learning effect. Yeah. Um, so, you know, so there's lots of possible reasons that that cue might have helped them that don't require the cue to actually have done anything, you know, per se. Um, but then just say it does, you know, appear to work, right? And everyone congratulates me and, you know, tells me how awesome I am for that doing that cue. I'm like, oh, this shit really works. This is amazing. I really know my shit. And so then I think I'm going to write a whole workshop on how to do this. You know, this, everyone should know this. It's so, so empowering, you know, to know how to do the roll up like this. And I'm going to write a workshop and go, hey, everyone, amazing workshop, how to do the roll up, you know, improve your cueing, learn to, you know, spiral your femurs, whatever it might be. And like, I genuinely believe that I'm helping people yep. by doing that. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yep. And those people come along and they, are genuinely helped because now they can do the roll-up better, right? They don't know it's just because they practice it a bunch of times, right? And if I'd given them any other cue, it would have worked just as well or even no cue. probably would have worked even better. But, yeah, so I, I kind of see it as done in good faith, I guess. Absolutely. A hundred percent. Yeah, I, I, I don't. I don't think I don't think you see I don't see those things and think, oh, that person's ripping people off and being malevolent about it or manipulative or intentionally kind of putting stuff in where they know that they don't need to. I suspect I completely agree with you. I guess I'm just saying from where I've ended up through my journey, I look at that and go, I'm not paying. I don't want to pay you money to do that. I'd rather just go right. and do a workout. Yeah. Right. Well, in the, and, you know, the, the the irony is by just literally doing the workout, you'll probably improve the exercise. <laughs> and the research suggests that, if you know, getting internal cues is probably worse than getting no cues or at least no better than getting no cues um, for improving your movement skill. So, um, which <laughs> which is funny. And I think there's a whole, um, you know, area that we could touch on there, which I, I don't necessarily want to go into, but I think that this kind of cuts to the heart of, uh, you know, this sort of, I guess, the perfectionist and and overthinking mindset, which is like you know, dovetails or really coexists with or enables imposter syndrome in people and people feeling like I have to be perfect before I start. And yeah. I, and and even I know I'm not perfect and therefore if people think I'm good, they must just be misled, you right. know, and yeah. they're going to find me out one day. But, and so I think it, it enables that, you know, this idea that there's some kind of deeper magical way of cueing, you know, that that, you know, you, the listener, can't, fully comprehend but it's like really magical somehow and just by you know doing it a bazillion times you'll somehow comprehend the magic of it but it always has eluded you and therefore you must be an imposter it's like i think no there is nothing there to understand like there's literally it's just it there's nothing there it's just words when i say spiral your femurs like it doesn't mean anything you know <laughs> like it's not a thing and and that when you teach in joseph's way which is just like hey roll up now I'll be over in on the other side of the room, come back when you've done 10, you know, like that actually works better and, and doesn't make you. And so your value as a teacher doesn't reside in how much information you provide to your client. It resides in the experience and the results of the client, you know, and, and that often uh, can be. Yeah. And then just to double click on that, 
so the way I think about that is if I give you the correct exercise, the exercise that suits you for where you are in this given moment, then I should be able to leave you to do it and leave you alone and shut up. Right. So success for me as the instructor is you don't need me to talk to you. Right. Right. But, but you know, which is an inverse of that. You need I need to be able to demonstrate my capability by explaining it and unlocking it for you. Right. And I th- yeah, so I think that's something that um, by doing that 34 sequence, you know, myself, yourself, you know, I think by instructors doing that 34 sequence, you come, you can come to realize, one of the things you come to realize is by just doing the sequence, you come to understand the sequence. And by, you know, it's even better if you video yourself doing the sequence and then watch the video. Um, but you often, and, and then look in the, look at the pictures in Joseph's book, for example, you know, and compare them to what you see on the video of yourself doing the, the movements. Uh, but that's not, necessary i mean you can literally just do the movements and you'll get better at doing the movements and you'll come to understand the movements better and that that is the same experience your clients can have you know and i don't really understand the notion or, or the 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 benefit that people some people seem to experience of being constantly talked at while they're working out and pushed in this way and that way and told to move their ankle bone 2 millimeters you know, one way or the other. It's like, I just find that kind of irritating myself and distracting. And and I, I can't get into flow, which to me is like the whole point of, or most of the point of Pilates is getting into that flow state. Agreed. There's a bunch of things in there. I feel like we could talk about for probably another hour. <laughs> All right. So I think well, we're, I think that's a good place to leave it. Yeah. We've, um, I think we've, we've come to a sound agreement that uh, the original 34, bracket 30, or 37, 30. you know, um, are a jolly good uh, sequence and that I think there's really a benefit to pretty much every Pilates instructor to, to doing them. Spend some time with it. Yeah. Um, and you don't have to love them all. I still don't love crab. I don't really love rocking either, you know, but, <laughs> but you know, I can kind of see the benefit of it, you know. Like it kind of hurts in the in the moment, but then afterwards, you're like, oh yeah, that feels better. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, and I I think that that like you say, there is a wisdom in that sequencing that is like a story, and that you come to understand as you do it. You know, so we've talked through it. You know, or you know. Um, stories before swan dive or whatever but it's, who cares if you remem- memorize the sequence right or if you know you can picture this in your head or whatever that's it's not that kind of cerebral knowledge that no. you're talking about it's, it's just the the bodily experience of of doing the movements and getting kind of a automatic habitual kind of you know like an instinct that after you do saw oh you want to do swan dive now because that's the next one in the sequence you know like that's just your body's ready to do that movement because that's that's the routine yeah and within the context of that practice, you start to, with, like, we could talk it through, but if you just do it, you'll start to recognize the overlaps. It's like, right. we could talk about it, but, like, just do it and pay attention and you'll spot right. it. Right. And, the you know, you don't, you, even if you're not, like, thinking really hard and concentrating and paying attention, it's like, if you just do it enough times, it'll be, become apparent. Yeah, that's what I found. Just kind of immersive. It. It's like, oh, that, that feels kind of like that. Oh, that feels kind of like that. Yeah. Good talk. Yeah. Thanks, Raf.
after two exercise science degrees and over a decade and a half of reading research daily, I've condensed all the current science on rehab into a program called the Clinical Exercise Specialist Rehabilitation. Inside the program, I'll teach you to do three things. One, deeply understand how the body works. Two, confidently and expertly rehab literally any client. And three, get results for your clients. So ultimately, your clients tell their friends and you become known as the go-to expert in your area. This program is completely unlike any education you've done before, even if you've studied with us before, because of the way we've built the learning design. It's an online, flexible, skill-based learning program, which means you keep doing the skills under supervision until you're good at them. It's more of a mentorship model than a traditional course model. So rather than rushing through the content and having sort of one go at everything, you actually just practice live and we give you feedback and guidance and we dialogue and explore concepts together until you're highly skilled and confident. We just keep working the material until you get it. It's not rushed at all. It's not about ticking off the content. It's about engaging, practicing and applying it until you own it. This is a life-changing program, not some weekend certification. I've put my heart and soul into building this, and I can't wait to share it with you and help you discover your genius for anatomy and rehab. Now, because of the highly interactive nature of this program, we're only taking on 12 students worldwide. The program starts on March the 1st, and the first 12 qualified people to apply will be allowed to enroll. So if you're interested in learning more, click the link in the show notes and download the course guide or go to breathe-education.com and click on the clinical certification menu in our link in the top menu. That's breathe-education.com and click on the clinical certification link in the top menu.